0: Welcome to the Seattle Public Library's podcasts of author readings and library events, a series of readings, performances, lectures, and discussions. Library podcasts are brought to you by the Seattle Public Library and Foundation. To learn more about our programs and podcasts, visit our website at www.spl.org. To learn how you can help the Library Foundation support the Seattle Public Library, Go to foundation.spl.org. My name is Linda Johns, and I'm a librarian here at the Central Library. And thank you for joining us for this very special evening with chang Ray Lee. We're so excited to welcome him back to the Seattle Public Library. As you may recall, in 2003, he was our Seattle Reads author. And uh, we most recently had him here in 2010 for The Surrendered. Tonight, Mr. Lee is going to do a short reading, and then the rest of the time is going to be a conversation, a a question and answer period, so please be thinking of things you'd like him to to talk about. A few thank yous. Thank you first um, to Elliott Bay Book Company and Riverhead Books for inviting us to host this reading to the Seattle Times for their support, and to the Seattle Public Library Foundation, which funds author events like this and our many other programs. So first, I want to introduce Karen, again, from Elliott Bay, and she will introduce our author. Thank you.
1: So thank you so much for coming. It's really an honor to host Wei Lee once again. We've been welcoming Chang Ray Lee to Seattle since his very first book. Was anybody here in the audience? Was anybody here for that native speaker, author event at Elliott Bay? Yes, I thought so. Okay. And here were several books along. He's currently professor of creative writing at Princeton University, where he served as the director of Princeton's program in creative writing. And he was also Program director of the MFA program at Hunter College. And as many of you may know, one of his students is Gary Steingart, who we, uh, hosted on Monday night. And Gary actually has a memoir out right now, a Little Failure, which has some, uh, some wonderful stories actually about tonight's author in the book. So that was kind of fun for us. Um, so they've been kind of crossing, uh, just missing each other in a variety of cities. So, as I said, we've known him here for a while now, first as a young writer from the University of Oregon's writing program, and we still claim him as a Northwesterner. I don't care if he lives on the, on the uh, East Coast now. His first novel, Native Speaker, was the winner of the Penn Hemingway Award, and he was also the author of A Gesture Life, which was chosen for the Asian American Literary Award from the Asian American Writers Workshop in New York City. This was also the 2003 Seattle Reads book, his subsequent book was Aloft, winner of the Asian Pacific American Award for Literature from the Asian Pacific American Librarians Association. And he was most recently here, as, as Linda said, with Surrendered, which won the 2011 Dayton Literary Peace Prize, and has now for a few years been a real favorite of our Seattle customers and library um, patrons and, and readers. So he's here with his most recent novel, On Such a Full Sea, and this is receiving great reviews, including the cover of the New York Times Book Review, and it's, I think it's going to be beloved for, by both writers and other readers. His books, um, this one included, are always filled with surprises and some really unexpected little twists and turns. Um, this book is told from the point of view of a collective, almost like a fable or a parable. And I'm not going to say anything more about it because I'm sure that I, I don't want to blow any of the surprises within. So if you haven't read those reviews, I'd say, I'd say hold off. This is an amazing book. So um, please join me in welcoming Chang Ray Lee.
2: Uh, thanks so much, Karen. And uh, I always love coming back to Seattle, as Karen mentioned. Uh, you know, I've been here for every one of my books, and uh, so I've, I'm really deeply grateful to Elliott Bay and the Seattle Public Library and the readers of Seattle. You guys have been great. And, um, you know, it's it's definitely one of those things where, you know, one never knows what you, whether you're going to have a career when you start it. Um, and Sometimes you still don't know if you can continue. <laughs> but... Um, but one of the, the, the most profound um, pleasures about being a writer is to return to a certain place and to reconnect with readers again. And, um, and you know, you're, you're at your desk all the time, all by yourself, and you sometimes even forget that you have readers, and it's times like these that, um, that are really quite great. So thanks for coming out. Um, uh, as Karen mentioned, I'm just going to read a little bit and I'd rather just have a conversation with you about it doesn't have to be about this book um, and then of course later I will be the bingo master and pull the, the ticket for the, for the 3D edition uh, which I think is pretty cool we, the, uh, the edition was uh, uh, made up by the in-house designer at Riverhead and MakerBot and they, MakerBot uh, makes um, I guess 3D printers and they printed out that slip case on a 3D printer, and I think it takes like 10 or 15 hours to print out each one. Um, so I guess they go for $150, but they're all sold out now because there's only, I think, a couple hundred that were made. Um, so I hear that, you know, you can people are offering uh, theirs on Amazon for like $995 or something. <laughs> so stick around for the raffle. <laughs> um, the... the um, <clears throat> i don 't know what uh, any of you might have heard about this book, but it 's a book set slightly in the future, um, maybe a couple hundred years and the main character is a girl named fan and she 's sixteen years old and she works as a um, she works as a diver in the fish tanks they um, they raise fish in this community she lives in called B-more. um fishes and vegetables, but she takes care of the fish and um, the fishes and vegetables in this in the society that I envision um, are for uh, a class of people called the charters who are very well to do and have have really everything um, and fan and her people uh, were descended of many you know, quite a few generations past, uh, but from the original Chinese settlers who came over um, to to um, be workers in this place and so she's she 's the, she's the um, She's the actually the main focus of, of this narrator, uh, the collective we. So I thought I'd just read a little bit about a little bit from the beginning about her work. Once submerged, a diver is not easily seen. Given all the fish in the water, naturally as many healthy fish are raised as possible. She is a mere shadow among them, trained to do her tasks quickly and unobtrusively. That is why she uses no special breathing apparatus aside from a snorkel, compressed gases causing too much of a disturbance. Fearful fish are not happy fish. The diver is not, quote, one of them, but is part of the waterscape from the time they are hatchlings, and they see her customary form and the repeated cadence of her movements and the gentle motor of her flippered feet that must come to them like a motherly lullaby a dream song of refuge, right up to the moment of harvest. The diver is there at harvest, of course, and sees to it that the very last of them finds its way into the chute. And it is only then, for the span of the few hours while the tank is being cleaned and filtered before the next generation's generation of hatchlings is released, that the water is clear of activity, that the diver is alone. How somber a period that must be, The constant light from the grow bulbs filtering through the canopy of vegetables and herbs and ornamental flowers suspended above the tanks throws blue-green glints about the facility walls, this cool Amazonian hue that suggests a fecundity primordial and unceasing. The diver inspects each aquarium, which is roughly the dimension of a badminton court, and by the end she is exhausted not by the work or holding her breath but instead from the strange exertion of pushing against the emptiness. For she is accustomed to the booing lift of their numbers, how sometimes the fish seem to gird her and bear her along the tank walls like a living scaffold, or perhaps lead her to one of their dead by swarming about its upended corpse, or even playfully school themselves into just her shape and become her mirror in the water. At at the pellet drop, they are simply fish again, And thrash upward, mouths agape, the vibrato of the water chattering and electric, as if bees were madly attempting to pass through her suit. And wouldn't it be truth enough to speak of those bristling hundreds as not only being cared for by the diver, but as serving to shepherd her too through the march of days? For who is she? given the many hours she and all the other members of her household spend at their jobs and how generally sparse their conversation is during downtime or when they're having their morning or evening meal while watching a vid or game. All around, be more, it's much the same, which is happy enough. But maybe it's the laboring that gives you shape. Might the most fulfilling times be those spent solo at your tasks, literally immersed or not? When you are able to uncover the smallest surprises and unlikely details of some process or operation that in turn exposes your proclivities and prejudices both. And whether or not there is anything to be done about it, you begin to learn what you value most. For Fan, more than the other divers, took to the tanks with a quiet abandon rarely climbing out at the ending hour to peel herself of the suiting in the changing room with the others. She would appear just as they were leaving for home, or if she didn't and they grew concerned, someone would go to the tanks and check that she was still working. For divers have perished from time to time, as they can believe too well that they are one of the throng. But Fan would be there, simply simply swimming about, scrubbing or patching, and the other diver would splash the water and wait until fans surfaced with a thumbs up. She once told us that she almost preferred being in the tanks than out in the air of Beemore, that she liked the feeling of having to hold her breath and go against her nature, which made her more aware of herself as this mere lone body. In the hour or so after the shift, with no more tasks to be done, she would pull her knees to her chest and drift to the bottom and stay there in that crouch until her lungs screamed for forgiveness. She wasn't inviting oblivion or even testing herself, but rather summoning a different kind of force that would transform not her but the composition of the realm, make it so the water could not harm her. And we would say, please, Van, please, You cannot truly believe this and she would almost smile and mostly nod but the impression you were left with was that she did in fact believe in such a possibility and if that is an indication of her instability everything else that happened makes sense and no more needs to be accounted for but let's suppose another way of considering her which was that she had a special conviction of imagination few of us do to be honest we wish and wish, and often with fury, but never very deeply. For if we did, we'd see how the world can sometimes split open in just the way we hope, that it and we are, in fact, unbounded, free. I'll stop there. Thanks. Um, I, I think you, perhaps you might have gotten a little sense of um, not just fans work there, but but the the sensibility and um, uh, perspective of the of the narrator, this this collective we uh, who is looking at her, uh, fan ends up leaving the facility, uh, looking for her disappeared boyfriend Reg, and her leaving causes all these kinds of troubles um, back back in Bemore, where where everyone's sort of watching and observing and telling her story. Um, so the story is, you know, the novel is a a couple different novels all in one for me. Um it's an adventure tale. We follow Fan in her quest and uh on the road as she goes about you know meeting all these strange people and uh sort of like Huck Finn, you know, all these little microcultures and uh ways of living um out in this very difficult world that uh, that is uh is existent. Um but also it's it's a, it's a novel, I think, about community and the community that that not only just watches fan but also begins to uh, think about and reflect on all the things that she's experiencing, uh, not for her sake but for their own. Um, so people have asked me why, you know, one of the first questions is, why would you ever write a story in the first person plural, the we, as it's sort of unusual? Um, but I felt that that was, uh, right from the start, uh, uh, quite natural and fitting uh, for, you know, that second part of what I was interested in. Um, and, and once I started writing it, I, I found that, uh, I, as Karen mentioned, I, I found I liked the, the, the tone, the tonality of fable that it gave uh, as we go further and further into fan story, um, that, that, you know, you felt a little bit like it was an oral tradition. Uh, we were sitting around the campfire and listening to it and, and that was some one of the things that you know, like a lot of things in writing you you can't possibly think about all beforehand and figure out it's It's one of those things that sort of pops up um, that uh, the writer either you know kind of well the writer feels but then either rejects or or continues, and that was one of them uh, so please let's uh, let's have a conversation, please ask questions i I much more enjoy that than than just going on and on, yeah. And I'll repeat your question. Uh, if, yeah. So the, the question or statement was more about the the contrast between the stability of the the, the or the sense of stability or, or desire for stability stability that the we wants in their in their very regulated um, uh, society, which it really is like a factory society. So everything is is prescribed um, and regimented. And then what happens outside, which is, you know, chaos, uh, accident, uh, improvisation, uh, craziness, um, and I think that's, you know, again, one of the things I really enjoyed about is the alternation between those things, you know, and, and how the, the chaos outside begins to fracture the fabric, you know, to to rend the fabric of of the, the very stable people of Bemore. And they begin, of course, to—I don't know how far you are—but they begin to rebel in their own ways. Um, they begin to act out a little bit um, and try to um, figure out the, the the outside limits of what they might do. I think the la- the last bit of my reading there is about freedom of imagination, and I think that's one of the things that um, these folks are sort of facing now for the first time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is the former Baltimore. Uh, and the reason why uh, the Baltimore itself is not important to the book, but a part of Baltimore is, which is, you know, uh, there's a neighborhood of East Baltimore, as you know, that you see very readily from the train, from the Amtrak train from New York to DC and back. Um, and that neighborhood is one of those, you know, just classic, you know, forlorn neighborhoods that's been troubled for many decades. And that is replicated all over the Rust Belt, you know, in places like Detroit, Youngstown, St. Louis, Philadelphia even. Uh, So it's not Baltimore so much, but I chose Baltimore partly because then I could say be more. (laughs) Um, And I like the irony of that because, of course, everything about living in be more is not to be more. It's to be, you know, the problem with be more in a place like that, as as I constitute it, is that you can see your destiny from birth to death. And that it's a, you know, it's a sufficient life, but no more. Um, but my idea for why this particular neighborhood, or this particular kind of neighborhood was important was that I wanted to, um, I thought that in, the, in this scenario of the future that, that certain urban areas of, of uh, the United States like, like that, decayed urban areas, would be repurposed as production facilities because they'd been abandoned years before, given up. Uh, it's part of my frustration about all these neighborhoods because I've been seeing that neighborhood in Beemore for all my adult life. You know, and sometimes it was fixed up, sometimes it was burnt out, sometimes it was fixed. It seemed like it ne- we never got anywhere, with that neighborhood and and so on the one train ride I said to myself just idly not to write a book about it just idly you know we should just bring a you know a village from China over here and have them live you know people are all around the world need housing these perfectly nice little row houses why can't just some people go in there and live there you know they were clearly abandoned and they weren't Baltimore was not allowing anyone to live there um Uh, And partly I thought about China because I'd been wanting to write a novel about contemporary China and factory workers in contemporary China and write a social realist novel about their struggles and their work and their inner lives and all that. But I had sort of dropped that book because I felt as if um, it was just, you know, it wasn't novelistic enough, at least my perspective on it and my angle, because I think you need that to write a novel rather than just very good journalism. Um, and I felt like I was doing good reporting, but not writing a novel. So I dropped that idea, and then the site from the train came up, and I thought, "Oh, that's an interesting premise." You know, I mean, sort of an immigrant novel in reverse, where we, you know, the, maybe the country needed such people, you know, welcomed them. <laughs> um. So, so I thought about it some more, and I said, "Well, of course, you know, it couldn't possibly be plausible that." that this would happen anytime soon but in a very different future when the society was a very different place and divided in, in very clear ways where people had certain functions. Um, uh, yeah, maybe. And so that's how Be More came to be. And there's also a place in the book called Detroit, you know, uh, and Wise Town, you know, for Youngstown. But, um, but again, it's not about Baltimore. It's about a certain kind of American failure and And that's really what I was that's really what I was when i when I interrogated myself, and this is always so interesting to me, even you know i've written five books now and you'd think that I would have figured it out, but you always think you were interested in something, but you have to in- look at it and look at it and look at it for a while to realize why you're really interested in it. I thought I was just interested in China and its ascendancy, all the things you know we read about China so much all politically. Industrially, environmentally, all these ways, and so I thought I was just interested in China, but really, I was interested in China um, also as an American, as looking at, at the ascendancy of China and maybe a certain feeling and that was and brewing but below that was a certain feeling of, of, of a kind of wariness about American stagnation and decline, which I think a lot of us are feeling a lot these days, you know. Um, so so that's so this book is sort of a response to all that. Um, and and uh, and the society that I see is a, is an extrapolation of sort of all my fears about our society. Hmm good question. The question is um that in my in in two of my books, uh, well a lot of my books, but two of my books the characters are very deeply traumatized and and it really it's a story about the aftermath of that trauma and how they go about Right, creating their own lives or or situating themselves in a place. And and the question was about this book and Fan. And I'm really glad you asked that because, no, Fan is not traumatized. I mean, she's traumatized in the sense that her boyfriend has disappeared and she's looking for him. But she's not someone with any kind of baggage, any kind of psychological burden. Um, And because I don't tell the story from her point of view... We have no idea what she thinks in this whole story, uh, and I very much decided from you know early on that that would be the case well the psych The psychology that we begin to understand is the we the collective be more you know the consciousness of that voice and perspective, uh, and we begin to see not their traumas but their concerns um, but but fan is. You know, there's something about her that's captivating to the people. Be more because I think, by the very virtue of the fact that she's, she's an innocent. You know, that she's she's just has a very simple and modest mission, which is to find her boyfriend. Um, And I and I I guess I wanted to to try to write that story. Uh, And I always try to tell people, you know, Fan is the central figure in the story, but she's not the central consciousness. It's a different thing. Uh, and that was kind of a difficult idea to get around because all so much of my work has been all about the central figure being the central consciousness, and it's all about the telling of. A, but but I wanted uh, I like the fairy tale aspect of that of having a character just moving along and, and, and you know I hope being appealing and captivating, but in a different way, not not because through psychological realism, but but a sort, certain kind of, I guess acting. You know, being right. Did everyone hear that question? No. Uh, the question was: uh, Did it? Did it? Did I come to some point um, where I felt comfortable writing such a book, where the where the main character was not endowed with any consciousness, um, where we don't we're not really privy to all the usual thoughts we are about all the characters that we read normally in fiction. Um, and um, again, that's an excellent question. It, it was something that I think I felt very early on and, and had an instinct to do and an urge to do, but I think I resisted at first because just of my tendencies, you know, and what, what I'd always learned and taught myself as a writer. You know, in, in realistic literary fiction, you don't do that. I mean, I would not tell my student, well, I have the main character, but we don 't want to know anything about what what 's in her head, <laughs> and we have to just suppose of what's going on in her head and then you know be interested in the story in which she features um, that 's exactly the the advice i wouldn't give so but but for some reason, I just kept going back to this figure of this young um, quite talented but in most other ways, quite modest personage, um, and there was something, you know, I don't know, maybe Zen about her that that was fairly really appealing, you know, uh, that that um, I didn't feel that she had to do anything but be herself, uh, and what one of the one of the primary features of being herself was to persist uh, through all the toils and troubles and. Exploits that that she and situations she found herself in. Sometimes she would act. I mean, she would have fear, or she would, but but you know, just sort of basic human emotions, not the kind of you know neurotic uh, or in, you know psychologically intricate kind of things that we that we're usually privy to. Uh, and so I I uh, yeah I did have to kind of work my way into it uh, and trust myself um, and trust that. What I was reading of my own work, I felt like i was I was enjoying it, and so I thought, you know, and that's part of I think experience as a writer, you have to trust yourself as a reader of the of the work and think okay this is this is not just that I hope it's it's appealing, but I think it is appealing, um even though I'm doing all the things uh in an opposite way uh, so yeah, thank you for that question. I sure other people have questions yeah the uh, The question was about is there a story behind the design cover and um, I think that the designer the designer is a very gifted woman at at Riverhead, and she also designed you know that that three d thing um, but apparently she she read the book and just instantly did this uh, and I loved it because it it echoes something in the book, which is the people of bemore start to uh, paint murals of, of Fan and Reg and she has a bob like this so it has this handmade kind of feel and she just hand did it with a marker um, but also that she didn't give her a face and and I thought that was so right because not because Fan doesn't have her own face she does but that the most important thing about Fan to the people of the book is that she's a mirror to them She's and she's a vessel for them. All their fears, all their worries, all their concerns about themselves and their environment and their place—they put onto her. You know, she's sort of this vessel, and so it didn't really matter who she was in, in a specific look, but she's really that kind of figure. So I thought that, you know, and I asked the designer about it. She just she couldn't really explain it. She just she just did it that way. And I thought that was just right, you know. And that's that's when you have a really great. That's when a cover really matters. I think when she captures something in the book, and graphically, I think it's kind of interesting and, and stunning. But she really captured, you know, the the you know a, a really important aspect of uh, of of what the novel's interested in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I never. You know, I never. Uh, I never asked them to read my work in, in the class. So, you know, it's just too weird. You know. <laughs> what are they gonna say? They're gonna say, you know. <laughs> <this> is, <laughs> no, at some, at some points during class, um, some students will ask a question more about process, you know, and maybe bring up a book of mine that they had read and said, you know, in that book, you know, we'd be, we'll be talking about an issue with one of their Stories or a story in the, in the anthology that I use and then, you know, they might ask a question about one of my characters and what I was thinking about. So, I will address that, you know, if, if they're interested. But, you know, I don't wanna, I'm not like some econ professor who forces everyone to buy a $150 textbook. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's just the biggest racket, you know. (laughs) Um, um, but uh what you know as my parents go, uh, my mother died before i uh published my first novel, so she never knew what happened and my dad um you know he 's been very happy that you know that that I made a career as a as a writer and i think he 's equally happy that I have a day job as a professor <laughs> so so i you know and and for Koreans of his age you know that 's a very honorable prof- profession to be a professor uh Uh, So, so he, I think he was very pleased about that. Yeah. 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 The, the Be More community is of, uh, mostly of Chinese heritage, but they're about five or six generations past, so there's been a lot of mixing with, uh, some of the local people who hadn't, you know, refused to leave. In fact, Reg, her boyfriend, um, uh, has some African American heritage. In him, and so he's he's a little different. Um, and there are little tensions inside of B-More about that. Uh, there are some tensions about uh, people with African American heritage, and that's something that I've I wanted to kind of get into, and not a lot, but but you know about certain displacement, um, about forgetting, um, and about a certain kind of um, you know rejection of a legacy. Uh, that that the people of be more just out of convenience uh, don't want to get into. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that, you know, all immigrants, you know, in some sense, this is also an immigrant novel. Um, very different than the ones that you might have read <laughs> before, but, but I think one of the, the tensions of all immigrants in, in any culture at any time is that um, there's always this displacing going on and Tension in between between groups, and so that's partly in there. Yeah. Thank you. Any other questions? Um, it's not it's not it's not so similar to that. But they're you know they I guess these people were brought over from China. I'm not that specific about it. They're they they're brought over from China because their their place in China was environmentally poisoned, so they didn't have another place to live, and they also had some production skills and could do those kinds of things. Um, But, yeah, there is a little echo of that, isn't there? Uh, So, I mean, you know, this book is both very serious, sometimes satirical, um, you know, sometimes a fable. Um, I think there are lots of different kind of modes that I was just kind of thinking about when I wrote the book. Uh, So, yeah, kind of there. All right, well, thank you very much. Thank you.
0: This podcast was presented by the Seattle Public Library and Foundation and made possible by your contributions to the Seattle Public Library Foundation. Thanks for listening.